Innovation, if done right, will make technology invisible. Today, technology is a barrier. It's an impediment to care. It's a wall that we have to climb over to care for our patients. Right? We have to learn that software. We have to learn those tricks. We put a password under our keyboards. We try to find the shortcuts. But technology needs to be invisible. Do you think that's possible in practice in the systems that already have these huge infrastructures that have huge businesses behind them? You know, my point in the big systems that are out there, much like the system that I belong to, is when you're successful and when you're big, the biggest Achilles heel that you can have is complacency. You, you're so successful that you become complacent and that's when you start falling. That's when you start failing. So we're trying to put ourselves out of business is what we're trying to do. Through the startups that we have, through the efforts that we have internally, before someone else externally comes out and puts us out of business. Speaking broadly, IT in healthcare is at the moment usually an added layer to existing ways of working, consequently too often being a source of frustration and anguish instead of aid for medical professionals. According to CB Insight, U.S. represents 75% of the global digital health market. Hunger for better solutions is being addressed from many sides. My topic today is, could better solutions be found quicker if different medical institutions in the U.S. collaborated more? How far are they from having collaboration first, competition later, relationship? Dear listeners, my name is Tiasha Zaitz and you're listening to Medicine Today on Digital Health, the podcast on how new technologies are implemented in different healthcare systems around the globe. In the 20th episode, you will get a glimpse into the attitude towards digital health solutions in three eminent U.S. healthcare institutions, Stanford Healthcare, Mount Sinai Health System, and UPMC. In the beginning of this show, you've heard Rasush Resta, the Chief Innovation Officer from UPMC. You will hear him further explain how UPMC is investing in innovation with its position of payer and provider. You will also hear Mitesh Rao, Chief Patient Safety Officer and Director of the Center for Advanced Patient Safety at Stanford Healthcare, talk about the relation between external startups and internal innovation. Mitesh is a mentor to quite a few startups, so he also talks about reasons for high failure rates of startups and where they are failing. But to warm up, Let's start with a few thoughts on the practical effects of tech development. Relax and listen how Ashish Atreja, Chief Innovation and Engagement Officer at Mount Sinai, sees the topic. Ashish is also the founder of Node, Network of Digital Evidence in Health, a U.S. organization trying to increase collaboration among different medical institutions in the United States. Uh, I think this whole field of what we call as digital medicine has completely taken off. The whole app ecosystem, especially in medicine, is around 10 years old. And coming from few apps in medicine to more than 265,000 medical apps, it's just amazing. And many of these apps are now FDA approved. Um, so I think it's exposing us to possibilities. Now from apps, you go to virtual reality, augmented reality, AI, chatbots, 
Um, so all these different streams of technology, sensors, uh, are all coming together and really creating a, a unique opportunity for health systems because we had no toolkit to support a patient as soon as they leave the office or the hospital. But now we can have a whole engagement toolkit to engage with the patient so they continue to maintain the healthy behavior. Um, uh, what I think is lacking is the adoption of all that. And where I see the next 10 years will be not about technology, but will be all about adoption and transformation. When do you think technology is going to reach the stage where it's not going to be a roadblock for the doctors, but it's actually going to start making their work easier? Right. I think the benefit of digital medicine technologies, all these new technologies, have yet to reach the physicians and the providers. And that's why we're trying extra hard to build platforms curate the best technology because there's so much innovation happening. We don't even know out of 50,000 or 5,000 apps in GI, which one to choose from, right? So we're solving this problem to rx.health. But um, on, the, on the same note, I think, unlike electronic health records, which were not designed by physicians, here, every physician has a chance to design the technology. And we're still at early stages of this technology, and I think that is the most empowering part. And that's why it has become like more like a day job for me. We can create tools based on the problems we face. Uh, so tools are created by physicians, for physicians, working with the community. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that things are being built by doctors, which is good in a sense that doctors know best what problems they have. However, when you're talking about optimization, you also have to think about how things have to be changed, if you know what I mean. Yep. So basically, if you do IT in a meaningful or smart way, you would look at the process, see what needs to be changed, design the solution, and then try to change the whole process. If you have different hospitals and each of them is solving the same problem in a different way, in an IT sense, that can become a problem because then data is written in a different way, making analysis harder. Right. So what you're alluding to, uh, Tiasa, is the problem of innovation management. So how do you do governance on innovation and how do you do management, uh, which I think is a best practice. Uh, and that's what I see one of the central roles for innovation centers to do. But at the same time, I think nothing to take away from the autonomy of giving not only physicians, but also patients, nurses, every healthcare evangelist a power to create tools or work with teams within a specific framework that makes sense to the institution. So for example, innovation centers can say, hey, for coronary artery disease, maybe post-stent follow-up, we're going to have one singular workflow. You can work on creating that, but institution will only adopt one. So those kind of governance and policies can be created and I think probably have to be created. So we create the entire ecosystem efficient and not redundant and duplicative and conflicting. The good thing is the innovation adoption is happening slow enough that there is enough opportunities to, for frontline providers to anyone to get trained in adapting their technology and kind of doing things which they would not have been able to do before. So I think the key is not employment loss. Uh, the key is employment training to take on a bigger and better skill. So nurses can go away from just documenting things to actually talking to the patient, 
because the documentation is happening much more easy by patient-generated data. And they are taking time explaining the patients of behaviors they need to change, right? The doctors can go away from just entering data into computers to actually maybe prescribing health education stuff, prescribing videos, right? Or understanding what the patient's perspective are before they recommend a surgery. And the roles get evolved only if we create time. And we can only create time by decreasing all the waste. I think that's one of the big points when it comes to what we expect technology to bring. It's a more meaningful human touch in the end, right? Absolutely. Technology is not unemotional or against emotions. Technology is just a tool. Emotions have to be brought in by the humans, whether we use text messages to impart that emotion or we use humans to impart that emotion. When we become part of the creation of the toolkit, we have an opportunity to put in a very empathic way, which we never had opportunity before. If you would think about how the healthcare institutions are going to change in 5, 10 years, how do you think the ratio of, let's say, hospital beds and the staff um, structure is going to change? Um, I think you will start seeing at least the hospitals merging together and many hospitals getting closed because a lot of the population is already getting old. I'm not sure necessarily all the hospital beds will get closed, but at least the growth in them will be gone and some of them will be getting back the health systems will start pivoting on getting dependent as hospital as the major most important and probably the only source of revenue in some cases to being one of the sources of revenue with at-risk contracts with high quality ambulatory care with quality improvement practices taking on a decent share of uh, the profits for the hospital if not majority of the profits at Stanford Healthcare, majority of innovation comes from the outside. For one thing, because the environment in Silicon Valley, where the medical center is based, is very lively. Around 10 pilots with startups take place every year, but more on that in the next few minutes. So I'd say just a ballpark, about 25% is internal and about 75% is external. And that's just because a lot of what's being developed internal may not necessarily be applicable to the health system. Right? So if it's a, a technology that's really focused on hospitals and healthcare, then it's really easy for us to think through that strategically. If it's, say, a med device or a pharmaceutical, it's not necessarily applicable uh, to bring into the health system probably at this early stage. Uh, but that being said, where we are located uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, it leads to a lot of companies in the area coming to us uh, with very promising opportunities. And part of my job is going through all of those opportunities, trying to filter out and figure out what's the right fit. Because it's not just whether the company is tackling a problem that we at Stanford want to address, but it's also whether Stanford is the right place for the pilot. Because the last thing you want to do is do a disservice to a small company that's just starting out um, that likely is going to struggle if they have a failed pilot. So um, I really think about matchmaking in both those directions, really finding the right fit. So how many pilots do you do per year and how many of those pilots, if you would think percentage-wise, actually stay inside as a new solution? So I'd say we do about a dozen different piloting activities in a given year, just to average it out. Sometimes we have more than one going on in a given month. Sometimes it's just one. We try to be very purposeful in what we take on. Some of them are digital health. Some of them are material sciences. 
Um, so we have companies that are um, providing new and novel uh, materials and fibers uh, for use in healthcare that we pilot as well. Uh, the percent that convert over, that's tougher to sort of ballpark, but I'd say maybe 10%. Um, you know, that's, and that's perhaps one of the biggest challenges with piloting, uh, particularly digital technology is that the conversion rate is often low. Um, so what we try to be very purposeful about is to make sure that even if the pilot is not going to proceed to a contracted relationship, everybody, all, all parties walk away with something in hand. Usually solutions are uh, designed based on the detected problems in the specific environment. And clinical practice can differ a bit from one institution to the other. So if each hospital, you know, is designing their own solutions for the same thing, how can you not, not uh, encourage even more silosing yeah, and so this is interesting. I think for companies in particular, you have to be really purposeful about not uh, developing too many niche solutions for clients. If you really go in and start to narrow your scope and try to build something unique for that client base and it doesn't scale, that's a trap. Right? If you're a company or if you're building a product or if you're an innovator, you need to think through, um, you know, what's my initial use case? And then how am I going to develop market share outside of that use case, right? What's my, you know, long, longer uh, roadmap? You've been a mentor in three different incubators since 2015. Is there an overview or opinion that you can give in terms of uh, what you see is becoming really useful? And maybe, I don't know, some ex examples, what you found inspiring. I will say that I've seen some very transformative technologies come through. Uh, things that are very revolutionary, that have exponential potential. Um, but those are rare. Uh, what kind? Can you be specific? Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot in the liquid biopsy space, right? So there's a lot of companies that are developing really novel technologies that I think are going to transform laboratory medicine. Um, I'm seeing some companies in the machine learning and AI space that, uh, you know, we had that first wave of companies come through where everybody was claiming that they were doing machine learning and AI. And often when you actually took a look at their science, it was pretty basic rudimentary stuff and they were you know just sort of incorporating buzzwords but now i'm seeing some really purposeful thoughtful companies the ones that i think are really going to make a big impact are the companies that are starting to think on larger scale so i think for the last few years we've had a lot of companies come through particularly in the digital health space who were narrowing in on very small narrow niche use cases such um, as yeah, coming at us with uh, an algorithm that they say is going to revolutionize everything, and it's you know they'll help us. So we've had a quite I, I can't even count the number of companies on my hands um, who have come through saying that they have this great algorithm, uh, or where they're pulling data from different sources and going to give us risk scoring and stratification for our patients. Right, that's like perhaps the most common pitch I get. I don't need yet another risk score. I don't need yet another categorization software for my patients. I want to see solutions that go to end to end. I want to see solutions that help me stratify and identify Right. I want to be able to plug a solution in um, seamlessly. And that's a really good point that you can continue from. Uh, one big problem is that the existing vendors are very, very strict in what they allow to be incorporated. So the systems are very much locked in. Yeah, no, it's not happening. And it's, it's fascinating to see. So, um, you know, in many ways, our EHRs have been uh, one of the biggest detriments to the advancement of uh, digital health. But it's something that's slowly being remedied. And I know people have a lot of faith that 
as things move forward in the interoperability space, we'll be able to overcome that part. It's hard to predict five years, 10 years from now, what the space will look like. You know, I have to provoke you a bit again, because you said that a lot of people have faith. And that reminds me also, if you use the word strategy, and just yesterday, somebody said that culture can eat strategy for breakfast. And that's one big issue, you know, with healthcare, it's like you have, you can have good ideas, you can have a strategy, how you're going to implement it. But then the implementation is just such a pain in the end. Yeah, so you, you know, this is the biggest problem with incorporating technology within the provider space or even selling to the provider space is that the sales cycle is abysmally long. Um, you deal with really entrenched legacy IT, culture that is not receptive to innovation and change. I keep preaching the implementation side, which is often, unfortunately, an afterthought uh, when it comes to innovation. We like to build things and then figure out how to get them in and how to get people to use them. And that to me is backwards. So, you know, we preach a lot of user-centered design uh, and computer-human interaction on the sort of front end of the work that gets done. Uh, And I really push companies to be really purposeful in thinking through. And you'll see companies who are have raised millions of dollars now, um, who are, you know, in later rounds of funding and have great valuations who are now still struggling to scale because of adoption and true implementation. You can sign up clients, you can sign up a health system, but if the physicians aren't going to use the product and deeply get ingrained that with that product into their workflows, uh, you won't have sustainable integration. So do you have any advice in that sense from your, from your experience, how you can, as a startup, scale up your solution or how you can implement an innovation apart from finding, finding uh, promote, promoters like doctors that would try to encourage other doctors to, to use the solution they see meaningful? Even as early as putting together a company, when you're building a team, be really purposeful to make sure you have talent that understands the complexity of the health system. Uh, I see again and again founder teams that are incredibly brilliant people where you've got technologists, business people, et cetera, but nobody from healthcare. And that to me is always concerning. Uh, and then more importantly, who are the actual users? Are you thinking through everybody who's going to be touched by your technology? Because uh, stakeholders are more than just the direct users. Uh, if you bring a new technology into the workflow and the physicians are using it, that's great. But does it affect the nurses? Does it affect the patients? Does it affect uh, environmental services staff as they're going about their work? What does it do for the actual throughput of the organization in that area of the hospital? Uh, if it's on the ambulatory side, you know, how does it interact with patient and family caregivers, the extended care networks? You have to be really purposeful and think through this because if you don't, one of those groups could be so disrupted that uh, it'll be problematic and then you won't be able to sustainably integrate one big issue in healthcare is that the payer is oftentimes not the user. So a patient is just covered by, either by the employer and the, or the insurance company. And those are the decision makers about if the, the specific solution is going to be scaled. And the second problem is that value perhaps can't uh, be always measured in money savings. You know, but it's still a value. It may be, it may be better quality of life. And these are all barriers to, to, to implementation. They are. And, and, you know, those, that value proposition may not be in a one year ROI. So the people who are signing up to actually pay for your product need to understand if you're providing strategic value that's going to be on a two or three year roadmap, that has to be reconciled with them. They need to understand that it's not just fiscal returns. 
Um, and you bring up another interesting point too, which is that the people who pay for the software or the technology may not necessarily be the end users. That's often the case. Uh, so you need to cater to both populations. You need to know how to sell to the people you're going to sell to, but you need to know how to design for the people who are going to actually use the product. Maybe just one last question. Uh, since you're uh, in uh, three different uh, incubators or accelerators or just programs that are following um, startups in, in a very detailed matter, which is Startup Health and Rock Health, how many solutions are focused on the world outside the U.S.? You know, everybody's focused on the American market because it's big. Yeah, no, this is a great point. So uh, I work a lot with international companies that want to get into the U.S. market, which I always think is fascinating because there's this sort of um, belief that the American market is enormous and very profitable. And it's true. The returns you can get from the clients are a lot different than, say, if you were in China or Brazil. But that being said, there are huge international markets, and I'm actually focusing right now on the opposite direction. I want to see American companies, because this market is often very saturated, scale internationally. I think there's huge untapped potential. So I'm actually working with uh, different groups uh, in Brazil in particular, uh, trying to find American companies that could potentially scale with the Brazilian market. Because uh, I feel like this is an untapped strategy for a lot of the U.S. Um, healthcare innovation space. How do you establish international market presence? What does it look like as you're building your client base outside of the U.S.? Um, that, you know, it requires a few things. It requires better relationships. So we've got some now. There's certainly better communication, but um, there's there's untapped potential uh, in creating networks for the international market. That's the first piece. And the second part is really thinking through um, what do the international markets actually need and how can you go and find the companies that are going to scale? Because there's often language barriers. There are application barriers with different differences within the health systems. So you have to be really careful about which companies you choose uh, so that you know that they're going to actually be able to plug in to an international market, if they, particularly if they were built for a U.S. market. Um, but I, I am very excited about that potential in particular. And so uh, I've been keeping my eye um, very closely on how best to try to build that strategy out. In the end, the key thing for every startup solution is how to hit the market. UPMC, one of the largest integrated healthcare systems in the US, is approaching innovation through an established venture arm, UPMC Enterprises. As Rasu explains, more than 250 analysts, programmers and other experts are working with startups. Rasu is also very passionate about interoperability, so he had a lot to say on that as well. UPMC is a one-of-a-kind organization. There are a lot of payer and provider organizations that are out there, but the way that we're actually tightly integrated with each other makes us very unique. That's one. The other is in how we're actually leveraging the power of the data to drive decisions. Uh, we have 27 petabytes worth of data at UPMC, and it's doubling every 18 months. Um, and behind that data is a lot of insights, right? So how do we leverage those insights, connecting the dots across the payer-provider realms to really reinvent the future of healthcare? And that brings, us, brings me to, a, to my third point, which is something that we're really good at doing at UPMC, which is um, really innovating and thinking outside the box with regards to where is healthcare really going. Can you yeah. maybe elaborate a bit about the relationship you have with startups yeah. and what... Yeah, let's start with that. What we've done at UPMC is we've essentially created um, an organization called UPMC Enterprises, which is our innovation and entrepreneurship arm. And we use the rest of UPMC really as a living lab. So all of the data, the insights as a payer provider system, where is healthcare going as opposed to not 
where it is today. Um, and we put our money where our mouth is, meaning if we believe in specific areas of clinical or operational unmet needs, we say, all right, this is important. So is there innovation coming from within UPMC? Or are there innovations that are coming from outside? It could be from Silicon Valley, it could be from Boston, it could be from Pittsburgh, it could be from Israel and other countries as well. So what we do is we then vet those opportunities, try to formulate the right sorts of strategic partnerships, and really then put our money where our mouth is, meaning we co-invest, but also co-create. So we have a team at UPMC Enterprises um, that, that goes up to about 250 employees right now. Right, a lot of employees that are really working in the field of data scientists, as programmers, as developers, and we're co-creating these solutions hand-in-hand -hand with these companies that we're either birthing or we're investing into. Could you say what the ratio is between the companies that grow uh, from uh, your university center and those that come in? And maybe just to illustrate a bit, what kind of solutions have you been investing in so far? Sure. Yeah, so just a point of distinction. We're affiliated with the University of Pittsburgh, but we're not the University of Pittsburgh. So UPMC is a separate healthcare organization all to itself. You know, over 30 hospitals. We're $16 billion in annual revenue and with like 80,000 employees. So a standalone health system onto itself. Um, so we, we, we have about half or so that have come from within UPMC in terms of startups and companies within our portfolio. And I'd say a good, you know, half or more where we've actually invested from outside in. Uh, could you be, uh, could you illustrate a bit what kind of solutions you're yeah. investing in? So I'll give you two examples and it'll paint the picture of like the spectrum of uh, types of companies that we have. So one end of the spectrum is a new company that we just birthed uh, just in the last year. Right? It's a startup. It's actually 100% owned by UPMC. And it's a company called Curavi Health. And it um, it tries to bring technology and uh, capabilities, uh, spe uh, specialized capabilities in the space of nursing homes and long-term care, acute care, uh, senior care facilities. Right, So that's really important, and we're trying to tackle that. So it's a startup, um, small company, but very impactful and based on strong evidence-based guideline and strong scientific and academic rigor that's come out of UPMC. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, would be a larger company like Avalent Health. Uh, we birthed Avalent Health in 2011. Um, it did really well. It's in the space of value-based healthcare and trying to help provider organizations navigate the challenges of managing risk on the payer side. Right? And there's an advisory services component to it as well. And then over a year ago, it went IPO and it was valued at $1.2 billion. So, you know, one small company, and then other end of the spectrum, a much larger company. And then in the middle are a bunch of other really interesting ventures that we have and companies that we've birthed. So um, we are currently at Health 2.0, where the big discussion, as always, in healthcare is the interoperability and the distinction between the data exchange. So in the sense of the startups that you're working uh, with, how much do these integrate into your system? And how much does that mean that you have to also work with your primary uh, EHR provider? Yeah, so uh, we've been leading the charge in interoperability for a long time at UPMC. I've been at UPMC for 10 years and um, interoperability was my what was one of my charges at UPMC uh, with, with other colleagues as well. Unlike other health systems, large health systems, uh, we have both Epic and Cerner. 
not just Epic. How does that work together? Yeah. So what's interesting is we made this decision some years back, and it's given us today an unfair advantage. I call it an unfair advantage because we have, through the work of interoperability that we've done at UPMC, managed to create interoperability between the two systems and the thousands of other systems that we have at UPMC. So interoperability is now a core asset and a strength. I'm not saying we've conquered interoperability. It's still a big challenge in the industry, but we have specific critical know-how with regards to what those challenges are and how to circumvent those challenges with real solutions, right? So that's that's something that we've actually pushed for. Now, um, what's interesting in the so question... Wh- sorry, if I yeah. can just uh, maybe intervene there a bit. What kind of uh, solutions are we talking about? Is it connectivity platforms? How do you yeah. make data um, connected sure. and talking to each yeah. other? And I'll, I'll then you know go back to your other question, which is how is it then connected with the other um, companies that we mm-hmm. have in the solution? So how we've done interoperability, and it's still a works in progress, is we've started at the basic level first, right? And that's syntactic interoperability. It's connecting the dots between all of these different silos of data repositories that exist out there. So that's, you know, that's the plumbing, and you have to do the plumbing. The other is more at an intellectual level, the semantic data harmonization. And that's going after the meaning behind the data. So medications, allergies, immunizations, problems, labs, and really trying to make them harmonize so that we can get to the meaning behind the data. And one of the things that we're working on right now is to create a data abstraction layer away from all of the different systems so that we can then create additional tools and capabilities and widgets. And then to your earlier question about how do the companies then fit into this, um, one of the things that we vehemently believe at UPMC is that for everything that we're co-investing or co-creating in, through UPMC Enterprises, we have to implement that solution at UPMC. You know, building something is really cool and sexy, but implementation is always difficult. But that's where the real value comes back to those companies, because we're able to iterate, we're able to provide rich feedback, we're able to really perfect the product before the product then gets taken out to the marketplace. And we're also then able to help with the thought leadership and, and with you know, showcasing how we're actually utilizing those products. So those solutions stay in the hospital even after the exit? In, in large parts, yes. Okay. A lot of um, hospitals or big institutions in the U.S. have their own innovation centers, um, building new solutions, improving care. And the question then becomes, if you have so many good institutions putting out so many good solutions, how much do you guys cooperate between each other in terms of using the solution that's already been made. That's maybe one thing. And the second question could be, you mentioned that uh, you're um, working on this upper layer where data is anonymized and can be used for the building of new tools. How much is that open to others to um, leverage from? So I'll start with the second part first. And, you know, it's a works in progress, right? Um, Data is valuable, but also at the same time, we need to, you know, uh, free the data up. It's important to free the data. Uh, But having said that, you know, we can't be careless about the data, right? Because it is valuable data. Sometimes it has, you know, information that can directly uh, be tied down back to the health system. So one of the things that we've done is to... Um, have more targeted approaches, right? So we have a partnership with Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Pittsburgh in what we call the Pittsburgh Health Data Alliance. And it's a UPMC Enterprises-funded effort where we're working with the most brilliant minds across these three institutions to create the right technological solutions and capabilities that will really challenge the status quo in healthcare. 
healthcare is shifting more and more to telemedicine, to value-based care, which also means care outside the hospital sometimes when hospital stays are not necessarily necessary. So in your case, in a vision sense, you have 8,000 hospital beds at the moment, 80,000 employees approximately in 10 years. You're the innovation officer. Where do you see the, the medical center, um, maybe infrastructure-wise? Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting question because while we continue to grow, even in the number of hospitals that we have, I do envision a future um, where um, it's going to move away from the bricks and mortar hospitals to the patients' homes, uh, to their smartphones, to their pockets. Right? Uh, healthcare, traditionally, in the last 20, 30 years that we've been rolling out health IT, has really been about the electronic health record system, and enterprise data warehouse, and lab systems, and radiology systems. But it's all within the bricks and mortar hospitals. Um, I believe that that's just one part of the larger ecosystem of where it really matters. Because a patient, if he's well, might come to you for an annual physical and spend 20 minutes of their year with you in the hospital. If they're unwell, maybe they come to you for a day, a week, two weeks. But for the rest of the time, they eat, work, and play outside of that health system. So that's where the real data is. So we're trying to factor in all of those data elements and connect the dots and create real interoperability between the clinical information data that we already have around the patient, the, the claim space data from the payers, but also these social determinants of healthcare data, the zip code data, the open data that exists out there. And that's how you get a much better understanding of what's really going on with the patient because our goal is really to try to keep the patients away from our hospitals. Right? As a payer provider system, one of the things that we've noticed is regardless of how well you provide care, as long as your focus is on um, getting that patient to be better or focusing on uh, basically sickness right, and, uh, and curing sickness, then it's cost acceleration. But when you start focusing on wellness as a system, it's cost deceleration. So we've seen that. There are proof points that we've actually seen around that, and that's our goal at UPMC. However, there's a big issue or um, a dilemma or, I don't know, maybe a problem when it comes to uh, decrypting or uh, figuring out the behavioral and psychological side of all the, the wellness things. I think one of the bigger problems that apps are facing is that they um, include a lot of manual input and health usually isn't fun to deal with, even, uh, you know, healthy living. It's just fun to certain extent and then you just don't want to care about it anymore which in data sense can mean that you get a lot of noise and inaccurate uh, statistical analysis if you decide to do it so maybe from a futuristic point of view mm -hmm. what do you see could be potential solution for you as a medical institution to actually get accurate uh, data about the patient since the patient at the moment or a person even if if it's a healthy individual can influence a lot what is gathered um, about him and to which extent yeah so um it's an interesting question and it goes to a core philosophy that i have in looking at innovation um, a lot of people talk about how data is liquid goals. You know, you got to have data, and data is king, and with data you can do anything. You can rule the world with data. I don't believe that. <laughs> I, I, I think it's less about the data, more about the information that you gather from the data. It's less about the information, it's more about the knowledge, 
right? Because you ma- when you marry information with evidence-based guidelines and clinical best practices and you know patient preferences, you get knowledge. But it's not even about the knowledge. You go one level higher, and what it really is about is wisdom. Because what you want is to try to then marry that with what the patient is thinking and what really needs to be done, what's in the best interest of that person or that patient. But beyond wisdom, even, right, is um, behavior change, because that's what you really want Mm. out of this, right? You want to have the behavior change. And what really generates behavior change are nudges. So it's less about the data. It's a nudge. It's a little nudge that you might want to put through that app or through that EMR or through that clinical protocol. We've heard how different institutions are collaborating with startups. In the end, what is the future bringing and what is the answer to the question in the beginning? Could the final outcome for patients be improved quicker by better collaboration among the big players? Here are the final thoughts of today's speakers. Every innovation center uh, has its own shape and form. Uh, And a lot of that is governed by the institutional priorities and who the executive sponsor in the institute is for that innovation center. Uh, It's a very different approach when it's a health system based innovation center versus it's a medical school-based innovation center. In medical school-based innovation center, it's all about supporting the community of the students, the residents and the trainees, the postdocs, and to get licensed, technology licensed out or create spin-offs. In a health system, it's all about value creation. And uh, it's a lot about taking the external technologies inside the health system. Um, and uh, there are also innovation centers which are very uh, accelerator-based models like Cedrus Sinai. And there are a lot of uh, innovation centers which have their own venture arm, but not many, not everyone has a venture arm. So I think based on who on the top is supporting the innovation center, uh, that creates a unique shape and form. I often talk about a maturity model uh, where you first start off with an innovation center concept that there has to be something innovation. Then you start having a full FTEs who are completely focused on innovation. Then doing few pilots and then scaling internal and external pilots. And then the fifth is when you start collaborating with others. And I think there is not many innovation centers that have gone to the fifth stage of maturity. Um, And really the value gets created when technology goes outside. Uh, So uh, I think to that effect, we launched this consortium of 25 plus health system called as Node Health. Uh, basically to bring all the health systems together. So if I have done something which is really useful and I have uh, published data on that in a very structured manner and the implementation science, how to do it, then that makes it very easy for Stanford's of the world to take it. So the idea came around one and a half years ago. I was in a panel with Boston Children and with Kaiser um, and someone asked the question, how many pilots I'm doing and which one? And the Kaiser person actually said seven out of 10 pilots were the same and Boston Children as well. So we were looking like fools at each other right on the stage because we were duplicating all other efforts. It's such a big effort to do a single pilot in a health system. You have to do IT security. You have to first do due diligence. You have to meet the team, evaluate the product. Then you have to do all this HIPAA, IRB, find the clinical champion. So virtually require a half FTE to do one pilot. That gave the idea, the aha moment was, what if we share what we are doing with each other? That led to the formation of Node Health. And then HIMSS through PCHA became as a co-founding partner. And now we have 25 plus health systems. And we're very happy to say on December 4th and 5th in New York City, 
we are doing the first scientific conference, inaugural conference for Node Health, and it's a digitalmedicineconference.com, where all these health systems and many more health systems will come together to say what is working, what is not working, and how do we together move the needle on transformation. I, I believe that um, you know, a lot of innovation centers are popping up left, right, and center. We've been doing this for a while. A lot of health institutions are starting to get into the space. We would love to collaborate more. It's a, uh, how should I put it, it's a muscle that we're trying to build. Okay, so we want to build that muscle a little bit more. Um, so are others in that fitness as well? I hope so. So I can say yes for certain examples. So I'll give you one example. Providence Health, um, you know, they're uh, doing some really great work in the space of innovation and investing, uh, very similar uh, actually to some of the approaches that we're taking. Most recently, uh, we got together uh, in an investment that they're actually uh, brought to our attention in a company called Zelf Health. And um, so, and, and we co-invested in that company. We're co-creating a set of solutions with Providence Health. So it's two minds that have come together in a very interesting company that tries to bridge the divide between the EHRs and the world of apps. Because you know, those are almost two distinct divides, right? Because patients download apps, but then you know, how do they share that information with the doctor? Well, they can't. It's very difficult, right? Because the doctor doesn't really have time, and the doctor lives in the EMR. So Zelth allows for physicians to prescribe apps, much like we prescribe medic medications to patients. They can prescribe apps, and there's a data interface between the apps and the EHR uh, through the Zelth interface, where the physician can then collect data from those apps, and it becomes part of the electronic health record system. And how is that connected to the whole reimbursement scheme and to the payer? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because as a payer provider system, our motivation really is to try to get the patients to be, not just get better from an illness, but really to thrive, to not even come back to our health system because we want them outside of our health systems, right? So we're, we're trying to um, tie that back to some of our um, incentives in terms of how do we make sure that you know, we're really able to push for value-based care, but also wellness. Um, I will meet a lot of companies that I think are fascinating, have a really cool product that doesn't necessarily fit with what we want to do at Stanford. And so rather than just say, hey, I'm sorry, this isn't a good fit, um, I always see it as part of my job to go across my network to other um, chief innovation officers, um, chief information officers, innovation centers at different organizations, and say, hey, I've got this company who's interesting. They're not a great fit for us at the moment, but maybe you'd be interested in them. Um, so I try to really share across my network because uh, I do want to see these companies succeed because, you know, six months a year on the road, they may actually be a good fit for us. Uh, I would love to see a large national collaborative of all the academic health centers together uh, to really drive innovation forward because the advantages are not only can we share ideas back and forth, but rather than do single center or single uh, organizational pilots, we could do multi-center trials on um, cool technology. And that to me is very powerful. Dear listeners, this was the 20th episode of Medicine Today on Digital Health. If you're interested more in how doctors at Mount Sinai can prescribe apps, check out episode 4, where Ashish speaks more about the platform Mount Sinai developed for doctors. A few interesting thoughts on why IT is so difficult to implement in healthcare are covered in episode 2. As for the future, the next episode will be 
either on blockchain and its main misconceptions around where and why it can bring benefits in healthcare, or how Dubai is looking at digital health development. Did you know that Dubai actually has a blockchain strategy since 2016? I haven't decided yet which episode is going to be next, so stay curious and stay tuned.